Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the fourth week of our series, Who Do You Say I Am? This message comes from Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 12. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us, and without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. We're in this Gospel of Matthew, and in the middle, whole middle section, that's the main question. That's the, not only who do you say I am, but if I am who I claim I am, then what does it mean to your life? And so that's what we're looking at here in Matthew 16 and 17. And uh, we're going to see not only in this passage in Matthew 17 something about who Jesus is and the glory, but as we just sang, the glory of the cross and how, how Jesus' glory is revealed in the cross in an incredible way. Well, if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. Um, If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. It's uh, on page 822 of that Bible. But please open up your Bible. Keep it open throughout our time so you can follow along from the text as as we study this passage this morning. But let me begin by reading from Matthew chapter uh, 17, starting at verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him uh, Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking to him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah." And as he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And they were coming down the mountain and Jesus commanded them, tell no one of the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead. And when the disciples asked them, why then do the disciples say that first Elijah must come? And he answered him, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. And so also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. May God bless the reading of his word. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege that we have to come together this morning, again, to be able to dive into your word. Thank you for the things that you're teaching me. And I pray now that your spirit would speak through me and in spite of me. Father, help us to hear your word, see your glory. Father, to to allow your truth to seep into each one of our own hearts, to not only know, but to understand and to apply what you have for us today. I pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, every once in a while you hear a story that seems so crazy, you're not sure what to think about it. I, I ran across a story like that recently, supposedly from an Ar- Arkansas newspaper. Now, let me go ahead and read the story. It says, a little rock woman was injured yesterday after leaping through her moving car's sunroof during an incident best described as a mistaken rapture by dozens of eyewitnesses. Thirteen other people were injured after a 20-car pileup resulted from people trying to avoid hitting the woman who was apparently convinced that the rapture was occurring when she saw 12 people floating into the air and passed a man on the side of the road who she claimed was Jesus. She started screaming, he's back, he's back, and climbed out of the sunroof and jumped off the roof of the car, said Everett Williams, husband of uh, 28-year-old Georgianne Williams. I was slowing down, but she wouldn't wait until I stopped, Williams said. She thought the rapture was happening and was convinced that Jesus was going to lift her into the sky. It's the strangest thing I've seen since my days, since I've been on the force, said Paul Madison, the first officer on the scene. 
Madison questioned the man who looked like Jesus and discovered that he was dressed in a white robe because he was on his way to a toga costume party when the tarp covering his bed of his pickup truck came loose and released 12 blow-up dowels filled with helium, which then floated in the air. Ernie Johnson, 32, of Fort Smith, who's been told by several friends that he looks like Jesus, pulled over and lifted his arms into the air in frustration, calling, come back, just as Williams' car passed him, and Mrs. Williams was so sure that Jesus was lifting people in the sky as they passed by that, according to her husband, she got up and wanted to meet him there. And um, now I read that, and I, I don't know the, somebody sent that to me. I, I didn't see the actual news article, so I can't vouch for its accuracy. But, but I look at that, and I have to laugh because I can, in my mind, kind of envision that scene. You know, this young bearded guy standing at the side of the road and, and, and trying to catch, catch a bunch of balloons that were, look like people floating up in the sky. Passerby comes by, thinks it's a rapture. Now, I don't think many of us would jump out of a moving car, but if I were to drive by and see that, it would get my attention. I mean, I would, I would wonder what's going on. And uh, I mean, have you ever had something where you just had this experience that was unexpected, you know, unexplainable, you don't know what to think, you weren't all prepared for it. Well, as we're looking here in Matthew, uh, what we're going to see here in chapter 17, that three of Jesus' disciples have an experience that is so unexpected, they're so unprepared, and they could never have dreamed about it. And what's significant is whereas the other story, maybe somebody overread and read things in that weren't true, in this one, what we're going to find is that it was impossible to overstate the significance of what actually was happening. Now, the context we're going to see is that Jesus is, is really dealing with this idea of saying, okay, how do we take um, what is often this gap between our doctrine and our belief, and how do we close it? It's actually a, an issue that's a struggle for all of us who are followers of Jesus. We all, to some degree, at times, deal with circumstances of in life that expose a gap between what I know and what I practically believe. What do we mean is that there may be certain things that we know doctrinally, and we affirm that doctrinal truth, but then our actions or attitudes reveal that we don't really believe it when we apply it to the difficult circumstances of life. I mean, for example, this uh, just past week, I was talking to someone who was talking about just their stress and their worry, and they have these things going on in life, and they're just so worried about it. And, and, then, and then he commented, he says, but I know that God is in charge of everything, and he's going to work it out for good. Well, that's a good doctrinal statement. And in talking, I didn't say it quite this directly, but in, you know, in talking about it, it was basically, you've got the right theology, but you really don't believe it's true. Because the fact of the matter is, if you really believe that God's total in charge is going to work all things for good, then why are you so worried about things? Why are you trying to control everything? Why are you so stressed out about it? You know, maybe God's allowing you to go through a difficulty to expose this gap because he's trying to teach you to really believe practically, experientially, that he's in charge of all things. Now, if we go back to Matthew 17, the context here is that we're told, verse uh, 1, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain. Now, notice, first of all, it says after six days. And so it's clearly tying what's about to happen to what has just happened. And so what happened six days before? What happened right before in the Gospel of Matthew that, you know, that as we look at it, we're, you know, we see this whole story. What had just happened? What just happened back, if you go up to um, you know, Matthew 16, Jesus had, had asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter, who do, you say, you know, who do you say I am? Peter gets the answer. You, know, you are the Christ. 
you are the son of the living God. He gets the right doctrinal answer. And, and not only that, but then Jesus then starts to explain to them, okay, yes, I am the Messiah, but I'm not the Messiah that you expect. I'm not gonna be a political Messiah that's gonna set up a political kingdom. No, I'm gonna come, I've come to suffer and die. And so we see in Matthew 16, 21, he says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day to be raised. And then he continues to teach that since this was the character of his ministry, then those who followed him wouldn't get political power, wouldn't have material pr prosperity, but we would follow him on his path to the cross. And so he continued to teach. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will, will find it. Now I think it's possible, if not likely, that, that the disciples heard this. They believed it. Oh yeah, Jesus is the Messiah. We, we know that he's going to come and suffer and die. And, but then they struggled to really believe because this wasn't the message that they expected. Well, and, and I think the part of them is saying, are, are we sure we got this right? Are we sure that he is who Peter said he was? And, and it was in this context where the disciples are struggling, I think, to really to, to take what they know and to really believe it, that Jesus now confirms what they know through an incredible experience. Now again, in verse 14 of chapter 16, Jesus had just asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do, who do people say that I am? And then they said, you're a prophet. And they said, who do you say I am? And they said, you're not just another prophet. You're the Messiah. And he says, okay, you've got that right. And I'm a Messiah that comes and it's come and die. And so they've got it right intellectually. But it's one thing to know it intellectually. It's another thing to know it existentially, to know it here or to know it here. And so what he comes and he says, okay, you got an A in theology, but okay, you, you don't really believe it yet. And so something's got to happen to help you get it from here to here. Now, the thing is, is that even if you talk about this, we understand this issue not only in theology, but in other things. There are a lot of things that we know here, but that we really don't believe. Now, take, for example, some of you could relate to this. There have been times that I've talked with somebody, and, uh, and we might be talking about food and the impact that it has. And maybe it's somebody that's, you know, got this, you know, giant cinnamon roll and, and, you know, you can tell it's like two pounds, half of it is butter because it's just is kind of like leaving like butter stains on the plate that it's holding on and, and they're just eating it and enjoying it and, and they're kind of joking in the process. It's like, oh man, this is so good. I can feel my, my blood slow down as the cholesterol works its way in my arteries and they joke about it. We, we know that, right? Well, I can have that same person and I run into him a year later and, and we're at an event and there's all kinds of pastries and all kinds of donuts and, and they pass by those and they take a bran muffin. And I'm like, bran muffin? I don't think you like the cinnamon rolls. Yeah, yeah, I did. I had a heart attack, you know. Now, now the fact is, does that person have any new knowledge? No, they knew that there was a danger to the butter and the cholesterol beforehand, but somehow it went from here to here through the experience of a health crisis. And uh, they knew it, now they believe it. Now, we could go through a whole bunch of examples because we do this all the time in many areas of life. But I think the area that is most challenging is that in the spiritual area of life. You know, it's, it's not only common, it's universal. All of us will struggle at times with things that we know theologically, but that we really don't practically believe and experience. 
Let me give you some examples. I mean, think about it this way. I could have, I, let me ask you, is it true or false? Okay, God, he's the Lord of the universe and he thought it worthwhile to come down and to experience infinite agony and loss through Jesus Christ so that you, God could have a relationship with you. And because of what God has done, God now has adopted you as his child. He finds you precious, that he's dedicated to caring for you as his child. Is that true? And most of us would say, yeah, that's true. We, we know that theologically. All right, if that's really true, then why do you worry? If you really believe that, why do you worry? Why does criticism bug you if you know that God, the creator of the universe, finds you of incredible value? Why are you anxious about everything, if you, anything, if you knew that he was totally in charge? Or let me ask, we know that God is, is all-loving and all-powerful and, and, and all-knowing, so that he knows everything, knows what is best for you. He knows better, what's better for you than you know yourself. And, in, and it's not only his general knowledge, but specific, because he knows the number of hairs on your head, so he knows it's exactly what you need. And we say, okay, well, that's true. Well, if that's true, then why do you struggle with applying things that his word teaches? Why do you question things? Why do you disobey anything that he says? Because if you really uh, you know, believed at the depth of your being that God knows me, he's what's best, well, then I would readily submit, because of course, whatever he says is what's best for me. So why do we struggle? Because I really don't always believe in my existentially, at my depth of my heart with what I know intellectually. There's, put another way, there's a gap between my doctrine, what I know about God, and my practical beliefs of what I believe and experience. And, and all of us have that gap, and at times God will expose that gap, and, and there are also times that God will help us try to close that gap. And so even here, when we think about this, you could look at this, and it's not just a matter of believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It's how do we make this real to our lives? And that's what the, that's what the disciples are dealing with. So here we're in Matthew 16, 17. Jesus taught his disciples, you know, that this is who I am. They're struggling to understand it. And what he, God does is he gives them a glimpse of Jesus' true glory, of who he really is. Now, even as we read this story, many of us may be familiar with it, but and it's a great story, but I think a lot of us struggle to understand what it really means practically. I mean, it would have been an incredible event to be there, I mean, to see Jesus and suddenly, you know, that he begins to glow and you see Moses and Elijah there. And he, you know, it's a little side note, I've always had this question, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? I mean, it, nobody ever met them. They had, like, both were dead for like a thousand years and how did they, I don't think they had a name tag or anything. You know, it's just, how do they know? I don't, don't know, but somehow God made them aware of that. And, but here's this incredible experience, and we look at it, what does it mean? And I think what God's doing is he's saying, you've got the right theology exam. You've got it here. Let me help drive it more deeply. And so we look at what happened. We read that Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John up on this mountain by themselves. In verse 2, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking to him. When it says that his uh, appearance be, you know, uh, became different, that he was transfigured, that he looked like, unlike anything that any person beforehand. His face began to glow like the sun. His clothing began to shine. Literally, it, it could be translated, they began flashing like lightning. And again, we could look at this. This doesn't happen very often. This is kind of this, you know, you, this is amazing experience. What does it mean? Well, part of it is understanding how God revealed himself through, historically, through 
what I'll say is a glory cloud. See, we can look at this and we can think about the imagery and say, okay, what do we have? We have lightning, it's a bright cloud of glory, the voice of God. And does that remind you of anything? And for most of us, it's gonna be like, no, you know, it's just an amazing story. But to the disciples who were raised in the Old Testament and, and taught, you know, knew the Old Testament very well, this was a very familiar, all the imagery. Why? Because it's a reenactment of some of the things that happened on Mount Sinai. When God had led the people of, of uh, Israel out of Egypt, he led them to Mount Sinai where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And there we hear that there was a cloud of glory that enveloped the mountain. And Moses went up, there was this cloud of, there was a lightning and there was the voice of God and God spoke and it was an incredible thing. And that cloud of glory then went with them so that they traveled. There was a bright cloud that would guide them through the wilderness. And there would be, overnight it would appear like a pillar of fire that it actually was a, the cloud, a presence of God that set into the holy of holies of the temple. And so throughout the Old Testament, the glory cloud was a symbol of God's presence, a, a representation of his transcendence and his majesty. And so what you see here is that for a brief moment, the veil of, of Jesus' humanity is lifted and his true essence is allowed to shine through. This is who he was. This is always who he was at the depth of his being that what you see is that Jesus Christ is the same God that was on Mount Sinai. His glory was the same glory that was on Mount Sinai. And now we look at that and you say, but well, wait a second, you know, what, in Mount Sinai, didn't Moses go up there? And, and, uh, and if you know the story, well, his face shone. Well, yeah, if we look at it, what it says is that Moses' face shone, but his face shone in a sense that it was reflected glory. In a sense, you could say that he was like the moon. That, um, you know, that you had, you know, that he experienced God's glory and it reflected the glory of, of God and it faded over time. But what do we have here? That it's not a reflected glory, but that, that Jesus is actually shining from within himself, that the, that the, you know, that the glory is coming from within him, that he's shining not as a moon that reflects, but as the sun that is the source of everything. And, um, and, and you know, so you see, you know, this idea that it's, you know, God is revealing himself. Jesus is revealing himself through all of this. And it's, again, the glory of God. So for example, let's see another place where this is taught. In Hebrews chapter one, it says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power, that he is the radiance, that he is the shine, you know, literally, you know, who Jesus is. What you saw, and again, on Sinai, that's what Jesus is doing now. He's saying, I am that God. And it wasn't only that, but then you see that you have Moses and Elijah, and what does that mean? Well, Moses had died 1,500 years ago, earlier. Elijah had been taken up into heaven 1,000 years earlier. Well, what's it going on? You see, Moses was symbolic of the whole Old Testament, the Old Covenant. He had received the law. So when you think of the law, you think of Moses. And, and then Elijah represented the prophets who had foretold the, the telling of the, um, of the Messiah. Now, if you remember, when Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? You know, they said, well, John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And God's giving an answer here and saying, no, Jesus is not one of the prophets. He's, he's much better than Moses. He's better than Elijah. They were all pointing to the God of glory. Jesus is the God of glory that they were all pointing to. And not only that, but he's come to fulfill everything that they had taught. And so it's not only the glory of Jesus, but then when you look at this, it's also teaching us about the glory of the gospel. Again, go back with me to Matthew 17. 
Starting in verse two, Jesus had taken his disciples and it tells us that he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white uh, as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And and over this amazing thing, you see Peter's response. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Um, You know, in Luke's account of the same event, Luke tells us that Peter didn't know what he was saying. And, and I, it reminds me of a, a good rule for us to all remember. When your mind goes blank, turn off the sound. You know, that's, Peter forgot that rule. And so he just is talking out of ignorance. And, and, um, and we're gonna come back to what Peter was saying in a minute. Uh, but then we're told while the words were still in Peter's mouth, um, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright, bright cloud came and overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And like on Mount Sinai, God speaks. In verse six, we read, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, what's this all mean? Now, the first thing I wanna do is to say, their response is confusion and then fear. They fall on their face, they're fearful. Why are they afraid? Because we've gotta understand that to understand what's all going on. What was the reason behind their fear of Jesus' glory? And again, here's, we've got to go back to Exodus. We've got to go back to the whole story of, of Mount Sinai. And what we saw in Mount Sinai is that teaches in, in uh, Exodus 19, the cloud of glory came over the, t- of the, of the, the whole mountain. And then we're told that if someone touched the mountain, they would die. And that actually is something that is taught throughout the Bible. So if the cloud of glory went into the Holy of Holies, if someone went into the Holy of Holies, they would die. If somebody touched touched the ark, they would die because God's glory is such that it's literally fatal to stand before it. Take, for example, look what it says in Exodus 33. Moses is on Mount Sinai meeting with God and in the middle of that, he says, please show me your glory. God, I wanna see your glory. God, I wanna see who you really are. And look at how God responds to the request. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I'm gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then he continues. And he said, you cannot see my face for a man shall not see me and live. Here you have God saying, no, you can't see me. You know, that you can't, you cannot see me. And so what God does is he puts him behind a rock and he says, okay, you can just see kind of the reflected glory, but my full glory will kill you. Now, why? Why is that? Because the idea is that the God's glory is so great that if we were to stand before it, his being is more than our being can handle. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say you're walking in downtown Cleveland and suddenly a full-size elephant falls in the sky and lands on you. You might, you might be thinking, that's really strange. You know, that's kind of implausible. Okay, yeah, I put it in Cleveland and far, you know, far-fetched, you know, and unprobable things are likely to happen in Cleveland. So like, for example, the Browns win last week. I mean, it was, how did they do that? I don't know. Um, or a better example, 1969, the Calga River caught on fire. I mean, think about that. A river caught on fire. Now, in a vacuum, if somebody didn't know anything and I said, what's more likely, a river could catch on fire or an elephant fall from the sky? I think the elephant's more likely. So, okay, so I rest my case. So let's go back to the illustration. Okay, so you're walking in Cleveland, an elephant falls from the sky and lands on you. What happens? It kills you. Why? Because in a sense, the being of the elephant is too great for your being. His being, his weight, his, in who he is. It's a physical law. You know, that's, that's just reality. 
or, or maybe make it less, more, uh, more plausible. If you go outside on a sunny day, so let's say like in the spring when we get another one, and so you go out and you, and you, and you look in the sunny day and you look directly into the sun, what's going to happen? It's going to burn your eyes. Over time, it's going to actually cause you to be blind because the glory of the sun, the, the light of the sun, the being of the sun is too great for the being of our eyes. We can't handle it. And so again, that's a physical law. And the same thing is in a sense true here spiritually. God's glory is more than what we can bear. And so for, you see this throughout the Bible. So for example, in, in Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet come, has his vision before God and when he stands before God, he says, woe in me, basically may I die for I am lost. Why? This guy that's a prophet, that's a man of God, yet he says, I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. I can't stand before this. And you see it throughout the Bible. Anytime someone stands in the presence of God, we begin to feel the moral, uh, the, the, um, moral weight because we're sinners that we cannot stand before the, the purity, the holiness, the, the glory of God. Now we're created for a relationship with God. But because of sin, suddenly we can't have it. We can't stand before his beauty and his glory. It's actually an idea that every culture in the world understands because they create religions and what is religion? Every culture understands that there is deity and there is, you know, there's, there's us. And there's a separation, there's a gap. And so what does every culture do? They, they have religions where, well, we make temples and, and, and there's places that you go for God's glory where we can't really be there. And then, and then the, here's the rules that you have to keep. You have to somehow work your way towards God's glory because we know there's this gap. And so the disciples, they know there's this gap and they see the cloud and they're scared because they knew that God had said, no one can see God or said to Moses, no one can see God and, and live. And here they see his glory and they're terrified, but yet we see that they live. They actually are enveloped into the glory cloud and they live, why? Because what we see is not only the glory of Jesus here, but the glory of the gospel and how the glory transforms us. If we understand what Jesus is teaching, what Jesus did. Again, in verse four, um, Peter responds to the suggestion of building three tents and then, and then in verse five, while Peter is still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. We've got to see the cloud literally overshadows them. They're brought into it. They, they're, they're given the experience that Moses was restricted from. And we're told that no one could do that or they would die. Why? Why is it they survive? Look at verses six and eight. When the disciples heard that, they fell on their faces and were terrified. And Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Why is it that they could see the glory of God and live? Because Jesus came and touched them. Because Jesus was there. And what you see is that Jesus in this moment and being transformed by the glory reveals the fullness of who God was. But it's also he's revealing at the very same time there's this huge gap between us and Jesus, but he's come to fill that gap. He's come that, so that through him we can now stand in the very presence of God's glory. Why? Because Jesus came and he lived. He was God. He was God eternal. He lived the perfect life. His life was one of pure glory, that he was God and existed with God for all eternity. And then what did he do? He came and he took on human flesh and then he died on the cross. And at the cross, he took our sin. He took our shame. 
And so what happens is no one can stand before God and live. But suddenly the one who was perfect took sin. And what happened is when he then stood before God, he took separation from God. He took death. And so that's why he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God turned his back. He could not, and, and, and he's literally standing before God, he, he died spiritually, that he took death upon himself so that all those of us who recognize our need and our sinfulness before God, it's not about how do we work our way towards religion and, 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 you know, and do what's right or, or that we're separated. We are separated. We recognize that. But Jesus Christ, because he took sin upon himself, he took death upon ourselves, if we understand that, we ask him to forgive us. He takes our sin. He puts it on Jesus. He then t- and, and the punishment for our sin, the death that we deserve, and he takes Jesus' righteousness and perfection and he puts it on us. And suddenly, because of what God has done for me, I can now stand in God's glory. I will one day stand in eternity in heaven with God's, before God's glory because I can have a relationship with him, that which I was created for, because sin was covered through Jesus Christ. And my friends, what we need to realize, that's a gospel message. And the question for each one of us, if, do you understand that? Have you ever asked Jesus to forgive your sins? This is not about religion. It's not about, okay, we're separated and how do we do this and what do we, how do we perform for God? It means that we come to God and recognize, God, I'm separated from you. I, I, there's a huge gap. I deserve to die. But only if I trust in Jesus Christ, if I let him come and touch me, he not only reveals the gap that is there, but he closes it. He allows me to have, through him, I can stand in the presence of God's glory. If you ever asked Jesus to forgive your sins, if you ever trusted him as your Lord and Savior, I'd invite you to do so today. If you've never done that, I would love to talk with you more about what that means. But trust in him. Now, that's where it starts. But even after we've done that, there's still an incredible message here, an incredible practical message of, of God calling us to see God's glory and, and, and Jesus' glory in our daily lives. You see, because this is not just about, okay, yes, it's truth about the gospel, but then it's to his followers who were struggling to believe, struggling to apply truth to their lives, and to each one of us to say, okay, how do we take what we know intellectually and how do we make it experiential, existential? Now, one of the things is that we can try to do is that we can try to say, okay, what I need to do is I need the experience. We have a desire to retreat to the mountain. Go back again to Matthew 17.4. After seeing this whole scene, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. I wish it, you, you know, if you wish, I'll make three tents, one for you and Moses, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And again, you know, he's just, you know, speaks and then thinks, and, uh, you know, which is not a good idea. And, and, you know, says, here's what we need to do. We need to put these shelters. And what he's saying is basically, Jesus, let's do this because what we have is here, the Hall of Fame of Faith, and man, this is a powerful experience, so let's set up tents so we can come back and relive it. You know, let's come back so we can have this experience again. We can get more of this kind of thing. And his initial reaction is to, is to try to, you know, set up tents so they can relive this experience. Now, the fact is, I, there are many of us here who have, over the course of, our, if you ever walk with God, you've had some kind of experience of God's presence. You've had some kind of mountaintop experience, some time where God has met you in a unique way. Maybe it's been at a camp. Maybe it's been at a retreat, on a mission trip. It's maybe in a a service or or something, just time alone with God. God has met you in an incredible way. And, And in that time, 
you know, we, because we felt God's presence in a powerful way, we never want to leave there. We want to, we want to go and, you know, we were there, and because of that, we're surrendering to God, we're experiencing God's presence, man, we're worshiping, there's, it's powerful, and we just, part of us are thinking, man, if I could just live on that mountaintop, if I could send out the, you know, those tents up there and keep going back there, man, then my spiritual life would be great. That's exactly what Peter's saying here. And we need to realize that God's saying, no, that's not the answer. There is value in those experiences. But what does God say? While Peter is still speaking, God the Father literally comes in this cloud and says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And here's what he's saying. You want to experience God's glory in your life? Do you want to experience his power in life? Listen to him. There's the mountaintop experience, but what about when we leave the mountain? What about when we walk down? Because the fact of the matter is most of us are not living on that mountaintop. And what he says is, listen to him, not only hear what he says, but take it, act it, you know, heed it literally. Now here's what it means. See, God's word, what we have in the Bible now, is God's word. It literally is, we talk about it, it's God spoke it, God breathed it. And if God really is all loving and all powerful, all glorious, then he says, okay, take what he says, listen to it, apply it, align your life with it, because in doing so, you're experiencing God's glory. You're taking his glory, you're taking his power, and you're taking it into your life so that it's changing you from the inside out. I love how Second Corinthians talks about this. He talks about you know, that Moses had this experience of God's glory that faded, but we are being changed in an ever-increasing glory that we are becoming more like him. We're shining more and more as we take his word and we put into our life. It's not about shelters. It's not about, you know, doing, it's, it's about taking these times and saying, God, how do I apply this? And what we need to realize is that listening intently to Jesus and, and taking that and applying it to our life is more powerful than a mountaintop experience. The mountaintop experience is wonderful but it's just to help us get to the point where we know how to listen and to apply all the more. And there is wonderful importance to that existential experience, but if we really wanna take these intellectual truths and make them real, it's not staying on the mountaintop, but it's coming down off the mountaintop and saying, okay, God, how do I know you? How do I listen to you? How do I apply your truth to my life? Well, then it's one challenge when we do that after we leave the mountain. Whole nother challenge, what about seeing his glory when we're in the valley? It's not just everyday life, but, but what about when we go through the difficulty? And so oftentimes, that's where the biggest gap between our theology and our beliefs actually is. God, you're good. How do I believe you? I'm worried. It's interesting when you look at this whole context. Right before this, Jesus has been talking about, I'm the Messiah who's come to suffer. And then at the end, in verses 9 through 13, he comes back and he talks about, yes, John the Baptist, and I'm going to suffer. And he puts this whole thing in the context of talking about his suffering. And I think he's what he's in a sense saying, hey, one day I'm going to go to another mountain. I'm going to go to Mount Calvary. And here in this mountain, you see glory and you see light. And you see, well, there you see death and you see, not clothed in lightness, I'm stripped and I'm beaten and mocked. And, and what he's saying is one day you're going to see what appears to be a total lack of glory. And I want you to remember this is who I really am. This is the truth. This is the truth about who I am. The fact of the matter is, it's not only teaching them about that experience. For all of us, we're going to go through times that we're in the valley and our experience doesn't seem to match what we know about God. And in those times, we can have this crisis of faith. We have this gap between what I know intellectually and, and what I'm really believing functionally. 
And God, in a sense, at times will give us this glimpse of glory and say, this is who God really is. This is ultimate truth. Okay, let me go to the disciples. Okay, we, they saw the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw God, God's glory literally being unveiled and they saw the true reality of who he was. Was he any less glorious at Calvary? Was he any less God at Calvary? Was he any less powerful at Calvary? No, all those things were true. They were just at Calvary. They were veiled. You didn't see them. At the transfiguration, you saw them. And in the same way, in our experience of life, there will be times we don't see it. It doesn't look like God is victorious. It doesn't seem like God is answering prayer. And we're going to question and we're going to wonder. And God is saying, no, I'm still glorious. I'm still, everything about me is still true. And remember who I am at the mountaintop and now apply that truth in the valley when you, it doesn't, you don't see it. It doesn't make sense. And one of the ways that we do that is, is even coming back and remembering to praise him and remembering to thank him. And I, I think about it even in Philippians chapter four, verse six. Be anxious about, don't be anxious about anything, but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. What's it saying? We're in the valley, we're anxious, we're worried. We've got things that we're, we're concerned about. And what do we do? Just bring it before God? No, look at how he tells us how we bring it before God. In everything with prayer and thanksgiving, supplications in the middle of those two things. So what is prayer? Prayer is praise. So in everything, praise God, remembering who he is, thanking him for what he's done. And so that when you're in the middle of the the valley, remember who he is at the mountaintop. Remember how he's provided for you in the past. And when you do that, then you will have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, which will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Then you will be able to take these theological truths and be able to make them existential. You'll believe them. And that's how God calls us to live that out. Just in, in closing, how do we do this? Just some, just daily, how do we make this daily choice to focus on Jesus? Let me encourage you a few things. It's in closing. Number one, remember what God's word says. We know, need to know what's true from God's word. That's truth. Faith is believing the things, the unseen promises of God above the seen reality and perception. And so it's remembering to look to God. God reveals himself in his word. That's what the father is saying there. Listen to him. If you want the experience, go to God's word. Dive into it daily. Learn to know it. Learn to believe it. And not only that, as we go and do that, there may be times that we have the mountaintop experiences. And you look back and you say, man, but God met me here. God, this was powerful. God answered prayer. Remember those things. God called, gave them this experience. God gives us experiences so we can pull back and remember what is true, but also remember that I had these times, man, I saw God's glory. I saw him work. I saw him do miracles. But not only look at the big things, also remember God's faithfulness in the course of our lifetime. That's the Philippians 4, 6 idea. So that we come, and, but we're remembering in prayer and thanksgiving, and so we're seeing that at this time, God, are you here? But you've been here, here, or you've answered prayer here. God, when I look back, I've seen your faithfulness throughout my life, and that will give me the ability to trust you in the here and now. But then also remember that the ultimate expression of his love, the ultimate expression of his glory is the cross, what we just sang right before this message. The cross is the expression of his glory. It's not only who Jesus was, but it's in that expression of glory. It's so that now we can stand before his glory. It was the expression of his love. And at those times that we question, remember what he's done for you. I love what it says in Romans. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If he loved us that much, you see, he's proven his love. Be overwhelmed by his love at the cross. Be overwhelmed by the glory that's revealed there. And the more that we're overwhelmed by that, you see, the, more, the less that we're going to be impacted by whatever is going on in the everyday grind of life or the crisis of the valley, that we should live in light of his glory. That is the ultimate reality. That's what God wants us to remember. And part of that is just daily doing what we're going to do in a minute, coming back and worshiping. Because what is worship? Worship is saying, I'm making this choice to focus, to focus on God's glory, to be able to, to in a sense, when my heart isn't engaged, to be able to engage my heart and to proclaim things about God that are true and that are wonderful, to see his glory and realize that this is not something that comes easy. I mean, they have this whole experience, the disciples, because they were struggling as we do. And yet God gives us tools to struggle to be able to see him for who he is, to live in his glory, and to have that perspective totally transform not only who we, what we see, but who we are by his grace. And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, Community Church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.